You're listening to Think Sustainability, the podcast where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I'm Lawrence Bull. In this episode, we're going to look at something most of us take for granted, corporations, and try to look at them in a different way. The first multinational corporations were established in Britain and the Netherlands just over 400 years ago. Today, they are big, common, and constant. There's something about power and grandeur that enables us to overlook moral transgressions. In the heyday of stories about gods and kings, they would literally get away with murder, while a witch or a thief would be hanged. If you poison somebody, you'll likely go to jail. But if you own a corporation and it poisons 100 people, what happens? The share price takes a temporary hit? There's an incongruence here. Our guest today is an expert in criminal law. She says we need to rethink how we categorize corporate immorality. Instead of thinking simply, somebody committed a crime, we should be thinking, somebody created a monster. She says we need a change of genre. When it comes to corporate harms, it's not crime fiction. It's a different genre entirely. It's pure, bloody horror. Criminal law is not good at bad stuff that corporations do. But in horror, evil corporations are a staple. This is Professor Penny Crofts from the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. I got into horror because of my mum and my three sisters We would all watch horror movies together, but we had a very early bedtime and so we would often go to bed before the horror movie had finished. Not a good way of getting to sleep. (laughs) No, well, we're so used to it. There's research on how you build up resilience from watching horror and so my sisters and I will all go and watch horror together like we went and watched Wolf Creek. We bring partners and then if they act shocked or gasp during the movie, we'll laugh and point at them. (laughs) Have plenty of water there if you want. Oh, thank you. Nothing like rainwater from the top end. For most of her career in criminal law, she did what most criminal legal experts do. She looked at people who break laws. She's even written some textbooks on the topic. But then she appeared as an expert witness at the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. That was when I had this wake-up moment where I was like, oh my God, I've been completely distracted and we need to look at the people and organisations around these systemic perpetrators, you know, that enable it to go on for such a long period of time. There is a reason why these individual perpetrators are operating in particular institutions over long periods of time and getting away with it, and they're not getting away with it at other institutions. And I find it quite crazy that we don't have more of a focus on corporate harms. Mostly they appear in the business pages, and they're not framed as criminal. I think that we have a tendency to individualise. Criminal law has been written around individuals, but even when we're talking about corporations, we want to personalise it. So you think about the Banking Royal Commission and people are talking about high-level scalps and things like that. But realistically, the people who they replaced them with were already part of the organisation and, you know, is that going to change anything 
We focus on individuals and it's hard for us to think on a corporate level, but then it is also to the benefit of corporations for us to think about it as individual responsibility rather than systemic. Mm. You have that, for example, with problem gambling. It's the individual who has to take responsible for problem gambling as opposed to looking at a systemic level that, for example, we know that the more available gambling products are, the more likely people are going to be addicted. Mm. Kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a funny paradox, isn't it? Because the propaganda is that it's the individual responsibility when it comes to the consumer, but when the corporation does something, it doesn't seem like individuals are held to account. I do feel like corporations are really good at slipping around and kind of claiming rights of individuals but not of being responsible. So when you actually try and pin responsibility onto a corporation, they'll kind of go, no, that wasn't us, that was a rotten individual or that was a mistake or that was an accident, we didn't have any control over it. The deaths at Dreamworld were completely avoidable and preventable if they had changed their emergency stop procedures 15 years before, as recommended, and then the court actually saying, no, 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 you weren't at fault. It was a tragedy or an accident with no agent to blame. So the corporation isn't being held responsible. And even if an individual like a CEO is being held responsible, it's not like they're being criminally charged. They're given a golden handshake and (laughs) moving somewhere else. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet deal. What function do you think horror films served in your life? What did they do for you? I find horror very relaxing. (laughs) One of my friends, when she broke up with people, she would watch musicals and I would watch horror. How do you explain that, that horror calms you? I think I just grew up with it. It is quite interesting because my older one, who is quite fearful, she was like, mummy, do you ever feel afraid? And I was like, no. And then I was like, no, I do feel afraid, but I kind of like it. So I'll sometimes go and watch horror movies on my own and then walk home in the dark on my own just to up the ante (laughs) kind of thing. So I guess also there's that risk-taking aspect, but it's completely safe as well. So horror, we used to think that it was just a combination of fear and disgust or something like that, whereas now some theorists have actually talked about horror as saying, no, there's a specific aspect to it and that's schema incongruence. Like, for example, you'll see a snake and you'll know what to do, whereas if you see a zombie in real life, even me as a horror fan, I'd have to think hard. I would know what to do ultimately, but it would still be, like, shocking to me and unbelievable and I wouldn't know how to respond initially. And so that schema incongruence there. It reminds me of something that I was reading in one of your papers. In crime, crime stories, usually someone's either a criminal or they're not. They've got nefarious intent or they're not with corporations and horror, particularly, it's a complex kind of web. Like maybe somebody is a good person during the day, but they're evil at night or maybe, (laughs) (laughs) you know. Yeah, and that operates on a couple of levels. Like pharmaceutical companies, I regard them as the slashers of the industry, like the number of people that they have killed or harmed, <laughs> and they keep coming back. They're like Michael Myers from Halloween or something like that, that, where they just keep on coming back. I shot him six times. I, I shot him in the heart. I, he's not human. But they were also the heroes of COVID. You think about the opioid epidemic, 
you know, they're basically high-level drug dealers, but the regulators approve those drugs. Yeah, it's supernatural in that sense, isn't it? Part of what they do in horror is that failure of authority. Gremlins, huh? Little monsters. Right. Hundreds of them. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe thousands. Wow. <laughs> Look, I know it sounds crazy. I know it does. But in a matter of hours, this town is going to be turned into a major disaster area. Now you have got to warn people. You think this kid is drunk, Brent? No, but you are, huh? <laughs> and the reason why authority fails is because the threat is schema incongruent. So the, the usual techniques just won't work. And I think that that's what's going on with corporations as well. No one would defend child sexual abuse on a personal level, and yet you have these situations where they're protecting the abuser in a professional context. So I did an analysis of Larry Nasser, for example, who abused something like 500 kids when he was working for the American Gymnastics Association, and I just found it astounding, like even the FBI didn't investigate for nine months. So so that kind of thing of where individuals have a difference between what they would say as a private person and then what they do professionally. When you look at horror, there's a supernatural explanation why people go along with it. Good to see another brother around here. <sighs> yes, of course it is. <laughs> Something wrong. But here, it's really banal and horrific that people are going along with it and, and just not stepping up, not doing their jobs. There's just all these people that if they had just stepped up and done their jobs, then he would have been stopped, including the FBI. And that's a classic horror trope as well, that authorities can't be relied on, that they are going to fail. So I've done an analysis of corporations as monsters because if the the archetypal legal subject is an individual, corporations don't fit. Like there's a separation, for example, of mind and body and things like that. It just doesn't work. And so there's a, a whole heap of literature comparing them to monsters like Frankenstein. So there's a, some beautiful post-structural theory about the threat and promise of monsters. So we're so scared of them because they can force change. They can force us to question categories and that is the promise of change, you know, that we don't know what the future will hold if we change these categories. So fundamentally what's the problem here? <laughs> Is it because they have more money than God and that they can afford expensive lawyers? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of it. I think that part of it is the power to shape legal definitions. You know, if an individual is doing it, it was fraud, but because it's a corporation, it's called fees for no service. Basically, there's this use of euphemism for bad stuff that corporations do. Pennycroft's work is anti-euphemism. A euphemism takes an idea and describes it in a way that intentionally obscures its true nature. Instead, she uses metaphor. 
A good metaphor doesn't obscure anything. It takes a complex idea and explains it in a common language, like the language of horror. My all-time favourite of a really bad euphemism was, so Gosport Hospital, which happened in the 90s in the UK, this doctor, Dr Barton, was prescribing end-of-life drugs to people who weren't dying. So there were all these people coming to hospitals for like things like rehab and hip replacements and things like that. She'd prescribe end-of-life drugs and say the nurses can confirm their deaths. So basically the nurses were then giving it to irritating patients who had dementia or wet beds or whatever. And so when the nurses complained about it, some nurses said this is not right. They were told to shut up or leave. Anyway, this woman kept pushing And the police and coroner said, we don't actually have enough money to investigate. And that's when they thought there were 10 deaths. Anyway, came out a couple of years ago, the report, and there were more than 450 people killed. But the report does not use that language. They call it a shortening of life, (laughs) which is... The ultimate. They are looking at prosecutions, but they won't go after the organisation. And the organisation, there were all these things, you know, for example, that you follow up on what kind of pharmaceuticals are being prescribed in hospital. And there was a big blip associated with when Dr Barton was working. I mean, that's just a really fundamental, you know, that could have been easily followed up on. So... But, yeah, there's a lot of euphemism in this area. But, yeah, that's my favourite. Shortening of life. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) That's what murderers do. They do that also, like, with wage theft. If you look up wage theft, the primary focus of research is on individual stealing from corporations, whereas realistically it's the corporations who are stealing from individuals on a massive level and it's not taken into account. And basically the way that corporations are presented in popular culture and the way that crime is presented as an individual problem against individuals is kind of cementing how we think about that. We don't even think about what corporations are doing as criminals. So we've had all these recent reports into bad stuff corporations have done, including Crown Casino, Banking Royal Commission, Aged Care Report, and even institutional responses to child sexual abuse where there is no mention of prosecution of corporations in egregious egregious situations and no mention of prosecution because we they just regard it as a governance issue rather than a criminal issue. And they are legal subjects, so they should be held responsible. Yeah, it's sort of a psychological trick maybe that we play on that ourselves that when it's a group of people who all have different responsibilities and they all did a little piece of something, then there's a diffusion of responsibility, which means it's in a way nobody's responsibility. Yes. So um, Tim Peters, who's up at Sunshine Coast Uni, he also does research on corporations and he's just done a chapter for me on a book I've got coming out called Evil Corporations. And he talks about constitutive vicariousness, which is basically that the corporation can't act without individuals, but when individuals are acting, they're acting for the corporation. And so there's a gap between what you do and the consequences. And so you're not held responsible for the consequences as the corporation because individuals are acting for you. And then the individuals are acting for the corporation and other people are acting. So no one's responsible. It's kind of like that 
Denzel Washington thriller. Do you remember where the spirit inhabited different people's bodies? Fallen? Or oh, something? I can't and, remember. But it's one of those, you know, where <laughs> where it takes over different people's bodies. They're this person and then they're that, and you can never really know who it is. But there's this kind of diffusion of responsibility and that ultimately the true criminal is never charged. We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to see. It's like the mafia. They don't even exist. Okay, okay. So where are they from? Who the hell are they? I did an analysis of aliens which had Wayland yutani one of the most evil corporations, and did a comparison of alien and aliens. So in alien, they explicitly decide to sacrifice employees in order to get the alien. And they give them poor weapons and stuff like that with the intention that they want the alien alive and if humans have to die, whatever, employees. But in aliens, they don't know what they're doing. They have no memory. They have no institutional memory of what happened in the past. And they give them bad equipment, but it's not because they're of malice and then wanting them to die, they just are saving money and it's just... Yeah, they're and amoral. It, yeah, yeah, and they're acting like corporations should, like we write corporations and corporations are meant to work towards profit and, it, and, and so they're saving money. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Fucking A. Oh, hold on, hold on one second. This installation has a substantial dollar value attached to it. They can bill me. Look, I'm not blind to what's going on, but I cannot authorize that kind of action. I'm sorry. They're acting completely lawfully and understandably that you don't worry about compliance and stuff like that. And the employees are completely used to it. It's not nefarious, but people die and the effects are the same. And yet Aliens, the second movie, is way more realistic in terms of how evil corporations actually work because it's not about actively wanting people to die, they're allowing people to die. the way that criminal law is written, corporate harms are too big, too bad, too nasty for criminal law, like the Gosport Hospital, where they can't handle just the sheer number of people who were killed (laughs) or their lives were shortened. They can't handle the sheer number. When I was trying to look up bad stuff that corporations have done, I noticed that a lot of the time they were estimating and doing approximations. So even with Bhopal, with the factory disaster, it said 30 to 50,000 dead. And I'm like, can't you be more precise? And part of the problem is that difficulty of counting, you know, the system's just not set up to count those kind of numbers. It's too much for criminal law as it's currently set up because corporations can do so much more harm than even the most ambitious supervillain. Like the supervillain needs the corporate structure to do bad stuff. You think about the opioid epidemic what can the big corporations be charged with? They've been charged with like weird things like mislabeling of drugs, but it doesn't get at the sheer number of people who have died and or become addicted as a consequence. And then the impact on the family, entire communities, states, you know, it's insane. And it is horrific. It's like what you would see in a horror movie. It's like what you would see in a zombie um, apocalypse. 
Corporations have the potential to be immortal. They can cause harms that then don't manifest for like 40, 50 years. So tobacco is an example of that. Or we've got the stuff with 3M, with PFAS going on at the moment. Deny, deny, deny. Oh, yeah, we did know in 1978 kind of thing. Slavery is another example where a lot of corporations are finding out that their foundations were based on slavery. Whereas if you're thinking about individuals, you know, the individual is long dead. Both perpetrators and victims are dead, but the corporation and its profits Mm. from doing the wrong thing have survived. So what needs to change? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm doing a couple of things. So one of them is thinking about corporations as responsible entities and emphasising that they are legal subjects. Rule of law, everyone is subject to the law no matter how powerful. And let's just go back to basics and hold them responsible. Really basic. And hold them responsible how? So then the reason why you'd use criminal law. So criminal law tells you that something is wrong. And it's prohibited, like you're not allowed to do that. Whereas the problem is, is if you're not applying criminal law, then that's a message that you can undertake a cost-benefit analysis. So, for example, Fiat, they knew that the cars would explode if it got hit from behind and they worked out, well, it's going to cost us this amount if we replace and if we compensate, it's going to cost us this amount. So we don't want them to do the cost-benefit analysis. But at the moment... It is completely rational for them to do it because there's almost no criminal sanctions. Like, they're just not applied. And the sums they're working with are so huge. They can do untold damage. I mean, if if you're making a trillion dollars, you can do billions of dollars worth of damage to people's lives, which is a massacre, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's horrific that criminal law isn't claiming these harms for itself, you know, that, that they're too big for criminal law to fit. So that then goes to the next strategy, which is to rethink our harm categories. We've got to think bigger so we can take into account corporations because at the moment it's just farcical that the reason why they're excluded is they're too big. And then the final thing I'm doing is actually just going back to basics of criminal law category like causation, intention and a requirement that the action and the intention occur at the same time. Why is it difficult to prove that a corporation had criminal intent? So the model of criminal intention is based around individuals. And so one of the questions has been, how do we know what a corporation is intending? And the common law has tied itself into knots and come up with really crazy ideas, mainly based around the idea that corporations are made up of individuals. So how can they think or intend? In common law countries like Australia, we have the directing mind doctrine that you need to identify what the upper management knew. But they can basically set it up to be plausible deniability that they didn't no. So they didn't write anything down. Didn't write anything down, but they also they may legitimately not know. And so an example was Crown with the money laundering, and part of that is that you're rewarding how much money is coming through the casino, but also the board kind of saying, "Well, we weren't told there was a risk." And when the media was reporting it, then they were told, "No, no, no, that's just the media having it in for Crown." I look at the aliens in the aliens movie. <laughs> 
And I'm like, we don't know what their structure is. We don't know how they make decisions. Do they have a board? Do they communicate telepathically? We don't even know what their language is. (laughs) Well, no, we assume it's the Queen, but is it the Queen? You know, the Queen might just be in charge of reproduction. So we don't know. We can't, we don't understand their decision making structure. We don't understand their language, but we know what they want. (laughs) There's got to be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? You can't. Bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. A survivor. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. I watched Poltergeist the other day for Halloween and it really stands up as a movie. It's it's pretty awesome. At one stage the father says to the owner of the business that's developed the area and he's like you moved the gravestones but you didn't move the bodies you moved the gravestones but you didn't move the bodies why why and the owner of the business doesn't answer but we know what the answer is he did it because it was cheaper he wanted to save money so for me I kind of that's an example of what I'm doing in um, my book is I'm saying well with individuals we don't always expect them to confess, right? It's not an Agatha Christie or a Midsummer Murders where the person goes, you're right, I did it because of this kind of thing. Like they often don't confess. Um, but criminal law kind of goes, well, we can work out what you wanted by how you were acting and, you know, you can make arguments against that. But if you go into a room and you shoot a gun at a person, we'll think that you intended to kill them. And we can do the same for corporations. It ain't that hard. This is an example where we act like it's really difficult and it's not. Mm. We've actually got the structures in place. Because we, we can't read minds either. Yeah, we can't read... hasn't stopped us. I know, but everyone's like, how do we know what a corporation... Indians, we know why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Money. Yeah. <laughs> Look at it from our perspective, please. Now, you freely admit to destroying an M-Class Star Freighter, a rather expensive piece of hardware. 42 million in adjusted dollars. That's minus payload, of course. We sat down there on company orders to get this thing, which destroyed my crew and your expensive ship. We are too focused on individuals. If you think about the massive harms caused by corporations, individual wrongdoers are a distraction from the bad stuff corporations are doing. And so... Then the next question is, well, if you're going to apply criminal law to them, how do you punish them? What do you do? And we know if we punish a council that it's the citizens who get punished. You know, it's unfair. And so the Landed Environment Court has been really imaginative in how it punishes local councils for illegal dumping. They have to clean up the mess they've made, but then often they'll impose some kind of remediation of public land for everyone in the council, and that's the punishment. So Mihalis Diamantis, who's written a piece for me as well, he talks about branding corporations. So he said, you know how with tobacco you have that it's dangerous to smoke, you could have that a brand has breached anti-slavery rules or something like that. There's imaginative things that we can do and we haven't even tried. We have a big civil penalty scheme here and so corporations haven't been prosecuted for money laundering but they have been subject to civil penalty schemes. And they've been only a few corporations, but billions of dollars, like the fine is billions of dollars. So 
that is a good thing. I mean, there's problems with civil penalties, but the criminal law is more powerful. So the criminal law basically says this is wrong. It's called an expressive theory of law. So it's expressing that this is wrong. I did an analysis of front page news reporting of the Banking Royal Commission across a year. There was this front page news article that said, we're not criminals. And I found that the corporations would admit to anything except being criminal. They don't mind being incompetent or immoral or stupid. They just don't want to be criminal. So there is a power in the label of crime and we're not using it. There's definitely some corporations that should be prosecuted for criminal offences and they have not been. And these are serious criminal offences. Yeah. We're kind of like characters in a franchise movie who are in denial. Bad stuff happens to characters in a franchise movie who are in denial. We know that this is going to keep happening. It just keeps happening. We're too familiar with it and yet we keep reacting in the same way. So we can remain stuck in the horror genre or we can get serious about criminal law and really think about what's required. I feel like we're at that stage in the movie where some people are warning about, like, no, they killed her right around the corner. It's like, no, there's not. That was the wind and this other thing and that's not, he just yeah. acts like that. And, yeah, um, and we should all separate. We should all separate. You go upstairs, I'll go downstairs. Don't separate! <laughs> When things start to change in movies is when there's just been so much horror and so much blood <laughs> splattered on the walls, right? All yeah. of the deniers are, are dead yeah. or maimed or converted, yeah. right? And then it's just undeniable, yeah. like the, the horror. And then, yeah, you have to take extreme measures. And then, right? and you can have, like, the final fatal girl surviving, so the final girl, but often also survivors will combine information and then group together to fight the monster. But I will say, even if the monster is resolved, one, they usually come back because horror films are made by corporations. (laughs) But two, the corporation returns bigger and badder than ever. This episode of Think Sustainability was made by me, Lawrence Bull. Thanks to Professor Penny Crofts for coming onto the program. Our series is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. It's made in Sydney on Gadigal land. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. If you'd like to hear more episodes, open up any podcast app and search for Think Sustainability. Think Sustainability.